Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. And you guys are more than ready, I think, for this live stream where we're going to be getting into what I think the occult is really all about. What do I mean by that? I believe personally that when we talk about the quote unquote occult, the hidden, if we are describing something real, we are talking about psychology, the psychology, the psyche of humanity, the collective the individual, the world, and the universe itself, that all of these different streams of psyche are in and of themselves reflections of the whole, of the mind, of the one, the monad that becomes two, that becomes four, that becomes eight, that becomes one again. So when we look at the mythographers of history, when we look at the priest classes, when we look at the controllers, the kings, the tyrants and the benevolence, we are looking at masters of universal psychology who have learned how to either play to their people's strengths or prey upon their weaknesses. And in, so, in, you know, in doing so, we are in an age that that has become the most extreme exaggeration of itself, maybe in human history or at least in what we can remember of it. Just look at the most famous psychologists of the modern age, and can you really disentangle them from the occult and from mythology? (laughs) Mythography? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about Jung, I'm talking about Freud. Freud wrote about Moses and monotheism. Jung wrote about all things alchemy. And in general, these concepts of myth and psychology and the occult, they really cannot be taken apart from one another. So in this conversation with my good friend who I have not even introduced yet, I got on a roll, (laughs) Gabriel, AKA Slick Dissident. You know him, you love him. If you've been around on this channel, then you've heard him on Vibrant every week. And it's been a while since me and my boy had a one-on-one heart to heart. And this conversation is going to be getting to the depth of some stuff that Slick here has been exploring on his own channel and on various others for quite a while. And I think we are ready to unroll it and unpack it in a deep way. And that, of course, is the Enneagram. What are these numbers one through nine? What are the archetypal modes of human consciousness, perception, and interaction? How do they work together? How do they, you know, what are their angels and what are their demons? And how is all this being played out in the mass and in ourselves? So we're going to walk through those numbers and we're going to talk about the esoteric psychology 
of the digital world, <laughs> the abstract, the numerical. It's going to be a great time. So you guys know the drill. Slick the incident on YouTube. Make sure you're following this guy if you like the way that he talks and what he talks about. And Gabriel, after that long-winded introduction, how are you doing, my friend? Welcome back to Interverse. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much, Chance. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure and a joy. Yeah, yeah it this, is, man. So this, you can go ahead. Yeah, the Enneagram project has been really fun. Uh, I, you know, uh, as usual, I always, you know, make it quite clear that I am the student as well uh, as the teacher uh, in all things. Um, I've learned that there's actually a book um, on uh, writing stories, uh, expediting the writing process by using the Enneagram. And so this uh, archetypal structure that I've been intuiting uh, very organically, uh, it turns out has um, a lot of objective, well-thought-out structure uh, that has been written about. So I've got a couple books on the way uh, to take my game to the next level. Um, let me see if I can pull up that title. Um, so yeah, I've been studying the Enneagram. Uh, I realized uh, something really fascinating that just really makes its importance known to me is the fact that um, I already had done tarot cards for the characters of Star Wars. And I had very strong correspondence with the, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker is the fool card. Uh, uh, Princess Leia as the high priestess card, you know, it's actually intrinsic to their names, uh, you know, in the twilight language of their character. Luke is looking up into the sky like the fool card. Uh, Princess Leia is Lahaya pre pre priestess, you know. So I started putting them up in the Enneagram, like visually to actually see these correspondences. And when I did, I realized that the tarot cards comport to the Enneagram perfectly um, in a kind of a tricky way. But yeah, essentially the fool card becomes number one. Magi card becomes number two. Uh, priestess card is a number three. Number four is tricky. It uh, collapses. Uh, three and four, uh, emperor and empress kind of come together in an uh, interesting way on the station of the uh, individual, the number four. And then card number five is a five. On the Enneagram, the Hierophant is at number five, the Observer. Um, and so as I went through all of that, it just was clicking in perfect sequence numerically around the Enneagram with the number of the tarot card. And so it's kind of given a lot of answers. Uh, it's been very rewarding, but it's also left me with quite a few questions. You know, there's quite a few questions to be uh, kind of sussed out of this. I keep calling it the... Uh, um, it's like the uh, the framework, you know? It's like a architecture or like a loose uh, substructure of the shape of the collective mind. And it's been given a particular shape uh, such that I think later in our lives, they can hit these notes and these, uh, these similar echoes to the shape of these archetypes. And it will ring true to us because it was seeded into our... Uh, our youth. You know, I was born in the year that Star Wars was made. So I'm literally looking back at the soil of my imagination from its earliest, earliest days and seeing where these preconceived structures, archetypes, uh, we, you know, what were they based on uh, before I got here? 
And it turns out Star Wars and specifically the South Crowley deck, uh, like all tarot cards fit. You can do it with all the tarot cards, but I'm seeing a lot of the South Crowley value in this project. So much going on here. I was listening to James of Grounded Extracts today on his Crow interview, and he was talking about being on Iboga and eating and drinking and having eyeballs inside of his body and seeing where all the liquid and all the food was going and he couldn't turn it off. And one, you know, one observer might call that imaginary and even say that it is psychosis, but an idealist and idealist as in philosophical idealism, recognizing that all is mind and all is the divine imagination. Like this is what I would consider myself such, (laughs) you know, you'd look at that and go, uh, that's not imagining he's seeing it. And so I think at the point in human history, if it, it's probably way prehistory, but at the point in human development where we started to say, this is imaginary, this is real. <laughs> As if that there was a distinction between the two. Right. I believe that that could have been a real, a real separation from God, so to speak. And when you're talking about Star Wars, even in anything really fiction, pop culture, mass consciousness like that, the way that it reflects the truth of human psychology, the way that it reflects dynamics of universal, (laughs) you know, hero's journey, what have you, like whether to what extent the authors and creators were playing off of what they knew to, to make it resonate like that. And to what extent it just comes through that way. What I'm saying is that what we're looking at with the works of the human imagination are explorations, forays into God's consciousness because it's coming. So much of it is just coming through the creators and they're making decisions, but like, really it's hard to say what, you know, Young talked about this, the image making faculty of consciousness. You can never get behind that. You know, you can never go find, you can never get to the projector, really. (laughs) The most you can do is be aware that there's like a fourth wall like that. And then meditating on that, paying attention to that fact, you'll be constantly tripping on it. But, you know, you can't really quite get past the fourth wall, at least not in a, in a a long-term sense, maybe in fleeting experiences where you kind of feel like it. But what I'm saying about that is we are what you're what you've described you know the way that these stories can push and pull on the strings and cords of our our very essence our very being and influence what we believe to be true so deeply is not is no small potatoes i mean that's why we do the marvelous demystifiers talks but i do want to back up a little bit i want so like to just fully lay out the uh, the intentions at least for starting out here i really want people to have their notebooks out and be ready to go over the one through nine and get the gist of what the system is. But I was wondering before we get into that, if you could describe the Enneagram, maybe if you know anything about the historical emergence of it into public consciousness Mm -hmm. and maybe your speculations on the age of this system or knowledge base predating the public. Yeah. Uh, It is uh, openly a mystery. Uh, almost anybody you ask will will start off with the fact that it's uh, it's controversial as to its origin and uh, where it comes from, and at what point in its history 
the concept of a personality matrix was overlaid onto it. Uh, that seems to have been a recent development. Um, and, uh, and it is most prolific today in self-help groups. And so a lot of people have come at the Enneagram with a very positive intention. Um, and, that, and it's very helpful for that um, because it really does have a, a kind of a, a, a positive, they call it integration or disintegration, uh, decision-making, predictive value. Uh, it really does kind of guess what your personality would lean to in terms of a positive outcome or a negative, uh, your pros and cons in your life. Um, and it's really dynamic that way. It's fascinating. but. Historically, uh, it goes through Gertschiff's hands. And in Gertschiff's hands, a lot of people will attack that, uh, the individual. Uh, and, you know, they even say that, so he attributed to the Enneagram to a Sufi sect. And the name of those Sufis uh, is something like Sargos or Sarogs. Uh, it translates to uh, the keepers of the bees. And that is quite fascinating to me um, because the beehive cluster is in the Cancer constellation. And I have found the Cancer, uh, The um, we just did a breakdown with Juan on the chariot card being a powerful correspondence to this Enneagram in a, in a major way. Um, so the beehive cluster is... Uh, carries the namesake of the Sufis who uh, gave Gurchev this Enneagram. And he started to bring it forward and kind of layer it and develop it. It's a kind of a hybrid, you could say, as the personality component got baked into it in Gurchev's hands. But uh, then a parallel interest group came along in recent days, and they said that they discovered it autonomously from Gurchev, somewhere from South America. And so it actually has multiple claims on its origin. But the one with Gurchev going back to the beehive cluster, that really hits a chord for me. I got to say, um, uh, looking into that, um, cos uh, the cosmology of the beehive in the cancer and its correspondence to the, uh, the chariot card, is the chariot card is gilded in gold, um, is uh, on a golden brick road. You know, a lot of. Uh, a lot of beehive. Oh, and he's also, he has the, uh, that little vibrating emanating, uh, vessel in his navel, uh, your standard chariot. So, uh, I think it's, there's a good uh, case to be made that this, uh, literally comes from people who know their astrology from like real high grade, uh, you know, uh, priest class, uh, the star keepers of old. And it does have a Eastern orientation too with the Sufis. <clears throat> yeah. Dylan talks about the uh, Sufis being a sect of, you know, lost sect of Buddhism more than anything else, which of course, you know, we pretty much say that about everything, but <laughs> I believe the word Sufi itself means like woolly. Uh, mm. So they wore wool. They had, they were like old wise men. Um, Buddha is depicted with the curly hair, woolly hair. Yeah. And anyway, this, I do think that this traces back to the East. I do think that we are looking at a system that is ancient and has been maybe passed around uh, initiate <laughs> initiate circles for a long time for yeah. good or ill. And 
very interesting to see it coming forward in the modern age with multiple claims to its heritage, which does, you know, back up the likelihood that it's been around for a really long time. So yeah, where, where should we go from here? <laughs> do you want to, do you want, you have more to say about the, the origins or what you think it is before we start talking about, you know, helping people conceptualize the psychology embedded in these one through nine numbers? Well, and do you think that there's a, you know, actually, okay, I'll hold that question. I'm, I'm going to hold that question. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, if you, if you can bring forward the, uh, the graphic I sent to you, uh, I can maybe talk about some of it because it also seems to, uh, you know, I've looked at it. it uh, there are many ways to categorize these relationships of these numbers to each other. And by looking at it in these different ways, you're kind of shining a different fractal of light or a different spectrum of light. And it does kind of reveal uh, some really uh, fascinating potentials, you know, uh, one of which uh, I've even thought of it in the context of, is it the, uh, is this an anatomical eyeball? Uh, Because it has like, nice. Yes. So you can see the grand, the grand. Finish that thought about the eyeball. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the 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 big Y in the middle is the most important uh, and most uh, basic uh, means of grouping in these numbers. So the eight, nine, and the one is the top. It's the crown. It is the act. It is the instinct, and it is the body. And so people who uh, relate to these stations are more instinctive in their initial imprinting. Their personality is more instinctive. And then we'll circle down through the two, threes, and fours. And the two, threes, and fours, they're more uh, uh, body, or no, they're more uh, feeling-oriented. And they're a little bit more uh, attached to the past. They see things through the lens of the past, whereas the eights, nines, and ones are in the present moment. So the two, three, fours are a little more uh, stuck in the past. They're feelers. And then as you jump across from four to five, which is a really important dividing line. The four to five divide ha- is packed with meaning that it's the center, it's the pivot point in the middle down there at the fundamental of the whole Enneagram. You're jumping across from the four to the five, you're going from uh, feel into the thinks. And so the five, six, and seven group, those three wings, those are the thinkers. And their personality types are more uh, thought-oriented and so with these three groups in mind, and I'm guessing future oriented future. Thank you. Yes, you got it. See, these are the different layers that we have to keep track of as we, as we look at it fractally, right. Kind of dialing in and in and out and focus on it. So, yeah. yeah and with consistency being the hallmark of truth, that fits the biofield mechanics perfectly as well. Nice. That the, the, past feeling side goes more together and the (laughs) uh, future oriented acting it's like masculine and feminine past and future like there is this left right axis and then even though the way we're looking at it the the future thinker actors are on the left side our left hand side yeah if we were on this chart looking out we'd be on the right for those if that makes sense, you know, 
it's the charts right <laughs> the charts masculine side is the future side the five six seven so just pointing that out that there's some biofield consistency to it as well yeah so that comports to the cross of the left and right brain internally doesn't it like, exactly a hundred percent yeah right so as we're looking at these numbers in their orientation it is the it is its correct orientation inside of our map, our mind map that would crisscross to be expressed with our body the opposite way. <laughs> so, right. So the, uh, is, is that how, yeah. Which is a trip because I also have thought of this as the eyeball as like rods and cones. Uh, they determine uh, cones, determine your color, your green to reds, right? And rods, uh, they determine black and white shading, and they give you depth perception. So in a certain way, you can take the three trines and you can break them into rods, cones, uh, rods, red or green, and then cones being, or no, I got that flipped. I always flip that around. Cones being red to green and rods being black and white, which give you the, all the ingredients from the Masonic checkerboard floor. The checkerboard floor is the black and white, the depth perception. It's the floor. It gives you a perspective. You can see all the lines running together on the checkerboard floor. So that's your rods and clones gives you the depth. And then, or no, that's the rods gives you depth. And the cones give you the spectrum of uh, all the full rainbow, the uh, reds to greens. That is fascinating. You know, and uh, again, in an as above, so below way, especially once you're not on a spinning ball flying through an infinite void. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although, I mean, the eyeball, right? But but there is a very strong case to be made that like the realm that we're in could potentially have fractal resonance to the eye, the eyeball. Right, right. I love that. I love that a lot because the uh, eye. The oculus. Yes. (laughs) And I is the ninth letter in the alphabet. This is the Enneagram. It was based on the nine. Um, I've even considered, um, you know, so many stories fit in a most mysterious way. But, you know, the uh, Moses holding up the staff with a serpent exalted at the, at the top of the staff. Well, serpent is the number nine, Teth. And this holds a serpent at the top of the Enneagram, you know, and I'm quite sure it has a lot of healing properties as well, as do stories. You know, you can heal people with stories, uh, which is a fascinating interpretation, I think, of, uh, you know, maybe Moses was telling harmonious stories, you know, just giving people a sense of, um, of nostalgia at the end of their night is a good healing medicine, I think. Okay, man. So if you are ready for this, I would like to start at one and talk about, you know, what's the one, what's the, you know, let's talk about that from a perspective of, and then to frame this up, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about the potential for this to uh, heal or harm, (laughs) you know, this knowledge, right? So basically here's where I'm coming at from this. And I want to know if your research supports this idea. And I think it does from me watching your videos where you allude to things where I think we're saying the same thing, but that we are looking at maybe the first 
order of division of universal God mind, imagination, creative consciousness. So you have the all, the pleroma, the undifferentiated everything and nothing, the void that contains all things. And then you have the first division, the monad becomes a duad, and it goes on. And so in this first order of divisions, you know, maybe you get to a point where the all is divided up into nine digits, right? Mm -hmm. And so it would make sense that just like there are these these archetypes of the zodiac that fit, um, and also we had a calendar of nine months before we ever had a 12-month calendar. Right. That this could be a very, like, not to get all reductionist on it, but this could be one of the most reductive, met, like, ways of looking at the human psyche in all of its expressions. And so we'd have people expressing variations of a position on this board throughout their life, right? They're not going to, st- oh, depending on who they're interacting with, what phase of life they're in what their role is, they're going to posture differently into different numbers as they develop or don't develop. And so with each number, just like with Zodiac signs, we're looking at a light side and a shadow side, you know, the light side and the dark side of the force. (laughs) And so I want to talk about the, I want to talk about both sides of each of the, or all sides of each of these numbers But I also think that what your research is suggesting and what maybe my intuition is suggesting is that these are, these numbers constitute a pantheon that in some level of existence in the reality fractal are living beings that live, (laughs) that live through us, (laughs) you know? Okay. Okay. He's nodding his head. Okay. So like that, you know, if you were talking about a video game metaphorically, I don't think we're in a simulation or anything, but metaphorically, spiritually speaking, you know, who, who's behind the fourth wall, who's got the controller of the, the chance suit, (laughs) like, uh, is that something that can fluctuate? Because it's a very mysterious thing. We have to admit, like, why are my motivations what they are? Uh, why, what, what is my free will that can alter my own motivations and my own beliefs? Like, what are these things? And is there a mechanism that can, so, so if there's a, a daemon or a demon for yeah. the seven, but also a god for the seven, talking of pantheons, right? right. Uh, is it possible to, move the levers of society by feeding the demon of a certain number and uh, weakening the God of that number, so to speak in a, in a like, so I think you're catching on to what I mean. It's very hard to put this into words sometimes, but I think we'll do a good job articulating the concept as we go forward through talking about the numbers one at a time. So maybe you want to respond to that and then lead us into talking about the one and then we'll go through there through the numbers from there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So uh, one of the most fascinating um, uh, statistics in, in, in the Enneagram community is the fact that they say that uh, up to 50% of the world population identifies as the six. And that single fact alone is, uh, is really monumental. And it also uh, bespeaks of social engineering 
quite quite pronouncedly because the sixes are very conveniently loyalists and their shadow aspect is fear to be fearful and so um the uh the seven deadly sins are uh, the, are the foundation of the enneagram uh and then they added two more sins deceit and fear so number 3 is the achiever with the uh, shadow of deceit. And number six is the loyalist with the shadow of fear. And so the six and the three were a new addition to the seven deadly sins. And uh, it's quite fascinating that so many people uh, have a uh, propensity, a tendency to that number six fear station, which is also the pinnacle of the think trine group. The five, sixes, and sevens are the thinkers. And so this gives us a real good, like, uh, almost demographic. You can, like, very quickly, with just a few words, you can uh, use your language to isolate a personality type in a really fascinating way. So it gives us that, too. It gives us, like, a nice, uh, you know, much like we do with the Zodiac, but like you said, more simplified. And by the way, this does, because it follows the progression of the Zodiac or the the tarot cards, and the tarot cards are sequential to the Zodiac, it does complete the Zodiac in a pretty uh, sound fashion. uh, And I think I could almost point out exactly how the Enneagram uh, should be on a Zodiac. I think there's a, a good fit for that. That's um, fascinating. I also just want to throw in, like, if there's any accuracy to the color coding of uh-huh. the chart we're looking at here, that the six being the loyalist is being colored with the purple between red and blue, which in terms of, like, what we know of resonance to our chakra system would be the crown. So in an uh, interesting way, like, if you just rotated this circle to put the six on top, the crown would be on top. Yes. <laughs> I think that's yes. kind of interesting. And a six is an upside down nine. Yeah. So the six, and, yeah. The sixes and nines have a very powerful dynamic. I think a lot of what makes the world go round has to do with sixes responding to nines. Uh, uh, and when I say makes the world go round, I mean like literally works like the cog of the uh, six and the nine of the two dippers <laughs> literally makes the world go round. <laughs> But um, so I'll just rip through some of the personality types so people can kind of have a, a grasp for, you know, well, I don't even, let, let me say this. I don't even want to necessarily rip through them. OK, you know, like I know that you've extensively thought about all of these. So, you know, starting with the one, yeah. um, what the description of it is, how you like maybe some real world examples of what you might spot a one doing. Uh-huh. Um, mythological correspondences that you've achieved, maybe pop culture, Star Wars correspondences that you've achieved. Yeah, um, okay. you know, like <laughs> the. You know, I want to really dig in and be like, what's the the enlightened expression of the one, and the you know demonic expression of the one? I really want to have, hopefully, like a be- a good grasp on on these myself going forward, because you know maybe after a conversation like this, if we're able to hit it pretty deep. Yeah, people could start to see the patterns and in, in their interactions with people, and then you know, once you start seeing the pattern, then you know you've got it on lock, and you're never going to like lose that recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I sent you, uh, I sent you my uh, most recent 
breakdown on the Star Wars correspondences, which are really good examples because they're caricatures already in our mind, each one of these people. And and as the Star Wars plot rolls forward, and you know, as we know, certain characters die, these positions collapse, and the characters actually uh, become dynamic. Uh, so this is uh, coming from a perspective of you know, uh, episode four, which was the very beginning of the Star Wars and uh, which was launched in 1977, which is a very powerfully, uh, uh, that's a very powerful number, 77. Um, because uh, we've talked about uh, the, some of the math of the Enneagram that is really profound is that uh, it turns out almost any number except for seven that you divide by seven will express this uh, mathematical pattern that reveals the Enneagram inevitably. So uh, if you divide a one divided by seven, the resulting number is 0.142857, And those numbers are literally... I can confirm yep. that. You know, I just put the calculator up one divided by seven point one four two eight five seven. So that mathematical. Truth, and what, what's interesting is it repeats one, four, right. two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven. Right. Oh, so that's getting weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that mathematical truth is a foundation, a fund, a fundamental of this Enneagram in the fact that, you know, if everything is number, then this system is clearly important. Oh, dude. Okay. So just so people really get home, like take home what you're saying. Yeah. All right. So you divide one by seven, you get one, four, two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven, repeating forever eternally. Two divided by seven gives you two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven. So it's the same exact thing, but now starting, it just starts at two, three divided by seven, same pattern. Forever yes. and ever. So seven is weird, man. I did not know this, but does this even apply to eight and nine? Yeah. Wow. I'm just doing it on screen here, but uh, anything divided by seven. Wow. Oh, gives you this pattern of the Enneag- that the Enneagram is using. Wow. Okay. So there's like... That just really doubles down on the occult significance <laughs> of the order of the Enneagram in a way that I, this is, you taught me something here. And that, that seems really important. Why would nature have this pattern with the one number um, <laughs> that, well, I guess nine is also uh, a prime, but it's like the one number that has all these other special qualities to it, the seven. Right. Oh, yeah. The only exception to that dynamic is seven divided by seven. And this movie came out in 1977 is the year that the film was released. Uh, So that's kind of fancy. Uh, And so uh, what I have is in the colors here, I've used particular colors on purpose uh, because um, the so the colorful uh, aspect is the ascended. It's their, you know, their, their strong point, you could say. And there are other synonyms for all of these words. It's, uh, it's not, you know, rooted in the word enthusiast or loyalist. There are other synonyms that fit just as well. Um, so the, I put the perfectionists are the numbers one and the giver is number two. 
And then I grouped them in yellow with the loyalists down here, the number six with uh, R2 and C3PO. And the reason that I grouped them together is because they share a common fundamental, and that is that they are um, compliant. They are generally compliant, generally speaking, they're compliant personality types. And so they have this triangular relationship on the Enneagram. And now you'll see the other triangle should stand out right away. You'll see the light blue color does the same thing with the challengers, who are the eights, the enthusiasts, who are sevens. And then across the triangle, the other light blue is the achiever, number three. And those three groups are called uh, uh, enthusiastic or uh, aggressive. Sometimes they're considered aggressive. You could also use the word uh, extroverted might be another word for that group. And then the dark blue trine that I have here, the uh, observer, the individual, and the balance up the middle, those three are considered withdrawn. Uh, and they will uh, kind of pull away. They'll prefer to step back uh, from most situations. So just that uh, trine grouping system with those three colors gives us a really uh, fascinating insight to like, once you know if a person is a thinker, a doer, or a uh, feeler, a feeler, thinker, or a doer, then you decide, are they compliant, are they passive, or are they aggressive? And then once you put them in those two questions, you've got a real good coordinate system for where a person's personality should fit on the Enneagram. And also, I should point out that a lot of people will shine in a different light with different people in their life. So like when you're with your mom, uh, most people will try to be their most perfectionist, a number one, a Luke Skywalker, you know, act like, oh, no, I've never done drugs in my life. Mom, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and then once mom, once you're with your, you know, your lady, you become like Darth Vader and fucking get out the lightsaber, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, different uh, different uh, situations in your life, you will shine uh, with different uh, personalities in yourself and in your own way. And so it's important to kind of find, I mean, to literally map out like, okay, I'm going to the family dinner. I'm going to be falling into my Obi-Wan Kenobi observer uh, personality type. And as usual, my fucking cousin, who's the enthusiast, he's going to be on my wing over here. And you can actually map these situations out and uh, start to strategize, you know, uh, in, uh, yeah, just have ideas and techniques in mind for situations that are coming up in your life. Really good. Okay. So this gives us a great basis to, uh, you know, jump off from. So let's talk about the perfectionist and what is it about the one as an, as a number? mathematically, esoterically, abstractly, and literally, that gives us this perfectionist uh, to wrath polarity. And, you know, how are perfectionism and wrath related to each other in this way? Yes. And uh, maybe, you know, bring out some of the other qualities you refer to. Uh, compl- what is it about one that's compliant? And, mm-hmm. and uh, see, it's up in the... Um, present moment <laughs> right one yeah. is on the present moment quadrant so like can you uh further identify all the things going on with one in terms of how this chart works and you know the polarities of it and let's flesh that out yeah 
so the one is uh, oftentimes uh, is the, uh, like you mentioned, is the doer, is the actual, the person who uh, is the actual executioner. A lot of times they end up being uh, kind of cast into the role of the Messiah. You know, a, a lot of people will put a lot of dependency on them to be the one who comes through. Um, and also, they be, are, how do I say this? They're often expected to withstand a lot of the uh, animosity that comes along with being the perfect one. They, you know, the golden child is, is a, a kind of part of the programming of the perfectionist. Um, so, so if you wanted to, so if you wanted to psychologically manipulate a one, then uh, you're probably going to like love bomb them, make them feel like the special boy. And then when they maybe get out of the lines that you've drawn for them, start uh, to pull back on the praise and, and switch over to, uh, you know, like the, how dare you, you were supposed to save us, you know, like <laughs> fix it type right. of so I could see how that could lead you to how the uh, maybe the other side of perfectionism could be wrath then. Like, I'm right. angry that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. And one, another thing, uh, plan, uh, the planetary aspects of this become very helpful, but they are a little bit confusing because of the tarot cards. The tarot cards don't comport exactly perfectly to, uh, but the planetary aspects of a one uh, the perfectionist one is considered uh, to have a Mars aspect. Uh, so it's Aries. And so Aries and the Zodiac is the beginning, uh, the initiation, the jump off point. Um, but, uh, and that was kind of uh, kind of tricky for me when I was putting the... Um, so the, other than perfectionist, you could maybe like call the one the hero. Yes, the hero, very much so. That's exactly what uh, brought Luke Skywalker into that position because uh, I think the Fool card is also uh, correspondent with uh, Orion. Orion is the big sky hero up in the sky. Uh, you know, he's the most pronounced, obviously anthropomorphized very uh, uh, simply. In fact, it's, a, it's fascinating how anthropomorphic Orion is. You know, it's you could easily convince people, yeah, God made it that way so that you would see a, a human being, you know? So, uh, yeah, so we're in Aries. Um, in Aries, obviously, the shadow of Aries will be wrath. So um, when I did this correspondence list, I had um, um, in this station of a number one, I put Zeus there during his battle with uh, when he battles Typhon. He has a challenger come uh, to kind of put him in check. And so Zeus has to move from his usual passive role as a seven. He has to move into his battle station and become a one because he has to engage his wrath to fight Typhon. So it's interesting to see even these connecting lines. Uh, a number seven is the enthusiast uh, with the, uh, over there, you can see that its line connects to the perfectionist. And so even when uh, these characters go through their dynamic personality shifts, it follows the reason of the uh, motion of the Enneagram in a, in a really fascinating way. So, uh, uh, so I've put Zeus as the perfectionist, as the wrathful one during uh, the battle of the heavens, when Typhon is invading Olympus, uh, when he's stressed out. But when he's in his passive role, when you put Zeus back as number seven, the enthusiast, 
as uh, Billy D. Williams there. <laughs> uh, then I have generally, I have Athena as the perfectionist. I think Athena is the best example in the Olympic pantheon of, a perf- of perfection. Gray-eyed Athena. She's born with all of her gear ready to go. She's fully armored. She has the full armor of God, probably a placenta meta- metaphor in there. And her wrathful aspect, she's actually a defensive uh, uh, god of war. She's a defensive warrior. Her shadow aspect is her brother Ares. And Ares, I think of as, as wrathful, as, as her shadow side, you know, uh, when she's drawn into uh, hasty decision-making. Um, so uh, we have Athena and Ares as the number one. And a lot of us relate to that, too. Uh, and I've talked about that on our show with the fellas about, uh, you know, the uh, the anagram for their program was R-A-T-H, was wrath. And I brought up the fact that that's perfect on the Enneagram because wrath is the shadow of a perfectionist, you know. And so a person who is expressing wrathful or angry behavior is very simply looking for perfection. They're demanding something better. And it's just as simple as that. Um, A lot of people make the mistake of thinking of anger as being hateful, and that just is not true. Uh, So that's an important thing I've learned in this work. So dropping down to the giver. Well, let's hold hold up. I want to flesh out a little more about the one. I feel like this is a very important position on the Enneagram. Uh, Quickly, or quick question, though. Do you know whereabouts the population is supposedly sitting in terms of percentages that it might be typically operating as a one? That's a good question. Because uh, I do think that we all fluctuate between all these positions at different points. Right. But we probably have, like a lot of us can probably see, like I kind of fit a home base in one of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, we all have like a good feel for each, but we really lean into one corner heavily, I think. And isn't it interesting that we had that uh, that – whatever that we'll just call it a psyop that was called the 1%. And, and number this is one, exactly what I'm about to get into. Yes. Okay. Yes. So here's what I want to get into about the one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So another aspect of the, the shadow of one in terms of oneness is collectivism, which like communism is a great example, you know, of the old, of the most obvious collectivism, but there are many forms that it takes. Collectivism is in general anytime like just look at how look at how the loyalist and the perfectionist have and the giver are all part of this triangle, right? Altruism, loyalty to the group, and oneness. Right. All of these things can be exploited politically for all kinds of shenanigans. So you brought up the whole like, you know, 99% versus the 1%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's great. And one of the, the more, a more modern example though, that I want to give is how like the uh, mount up Patriots, <laughs> the storms coming, chasing Hillary through the sewers, all of this like uh, right leaning collectivism that is uh just permeated the internet since orange man took power uh, and how much of that, how much of that collectivism in terms of just like thoughtless repeating of 
of information without any surety of its ver- veracity and how like, you know, how one of how one thinks we all think and they don't even really see the hive mind that they're getting into. And in their mind, in their like in the exploitation of the wrath that has been seeded in this group. Yes. You know, you get things like the ones the uh, January 6th uh super scared capital riot and you get uh all you just get like <laughs> you get the ability to for people to actually completely ignore um you know their own original value systems right just for the sake of their loyalty so playing across that spectrum of perfectionist to loyalty like and in their in their minds like so given the example of how so many people were like god emperor trump god emperor trump uh-huh. totally hip to what cowpokes were uh and yet like stayed the course of loyalty uh and seeing their god emperor as perfect even after warp speed maga jabs that yeah. you know that their god emperor claimed responsibility for and was you know openly proud of and never once recanted that they were the best thing ever. Right. Right. So my point is that this collectivism is really easily instilled and exploited in people when you're playing on their wrath side, Mm -hmm. when you get them all riled up, like there's, there's uh, very few emotional switches that work for the movement of mass action in a certain direction like righteous indignation. Like that is a really powerful switch to operate on. So, yeah. And this is what I'm talking about earlier when I'm bringing up the idea that like uh you're able to sort of feed the demon of a certain thing. And they do this, you know, like the Wayfair scandal and Pizzagate and you know, I I think that we have seen a feeding of breadcrumbs of certain narratives to feed the wrath demon and you know then i think it will be wrath parades it's, it goes like pride parades then wrath parades and look they're <laughs> right next to each <laughs> like it's gonna oscillate yeah. i really think like i think there's a lot of wrath building up over the pride parade culture yes. You, yes. you see what i mean yes and so I there's think- like this there is this like a battery playing between the polarities of pride to wrath pride to wrath pride to wrath pride to wrath And uh, all of it working on the fear is as the axis or the, you know, that the lever is turning on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've pondered, you know, could we maybe uh, uh, make the association of this trine that we're talking about the six, one and the two, this is the, uh, uh, these are the, uh, those who will go along. They're compliant. They're the compliant trine. you know, could we think of them as like almost that um, the the uh, the liberal wing, you know, because they have those uh, the pride is in their shadow, you know, the wrath is in their shadow. And, you know, is this one wing that the government will use to scare the other wing? And could we say that maybe the uh, the aggressive wing, the challenger enthusiast and the achiever, you know, could that be the conservative wing? And then would the liberal or the libertarians or the anarchists, would we be the central ring? We listen to me. Oops. (laughs) Could the the central trine of the observer individual imbalance, 
you know, could that constitute, you know, the libertarian party, you know, the more balanced approach at things? Uh, I think there's uh, there's a lot of ways we could look at this and say this is the government, you know, this is the covenant of the mind. This is how the brain works. Yeah, that's a really good point, man. And even I think that you could look at it the way you just described. I think you could also look at any of the trines themselves as a left right paradigm right. W- with the control switch in the middle. Yes. You yes. know, the uh the conservative pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh that's a very perfectionist thing. The the Democrat government should nurture us and be our mother. That's a very giver side of things. Yes. And both wings of that are played played off of and plagued by their loyalty to whatever party line they're on. Right. Yeah. And mostly they are manipulated through that fear switch of like, you got to get out there and vote because what if the other guy wins? It's more, you know, like look at political ads. They don't really, they're way more interested in telling you why the other guy is bad than what is going to be done. That's good by your guy. Yeah. So and then, yeah. yeah, like we can probably see that same type of thing going on in the other trines as well. But yeah. I do, do want to, you know, get into the giver, the number two, uh, okay. a little more in depth now as well. All right. Yeah. So one thing that I find uh, somewhat revealing is oftentimes I see this Enneagram at play in stories. Um, and I'll, uh, sometimes I'll hear of like people crossing swords or spears, uh, spear play, or even, uh, you know, family members, nine family members being all shot with arrows. Well, uh, in a really fascinating way, all of those phrases I just used also encode this Enneagram. It has spears going in all directions. It has arrows, nine arrows, nine family members shot with arrows. So I also think of this as the Eros Gamos. You know, this is the uh, alchemical weddings. You could also translate to the, that to the um, uh, the love games, the games of love, and then I've inverted that phrase to uh, the uh, power brokers. So love games, you you uh, you invert those phrase that phrase, and you get power brokers. And so I do believe that this kind of uh, science is being uh, applied on the stock uh, the stock exchange, and I'm pretty sure they're well aware of the inevitability of these dynamics. Um, so yeah, just the very fact that they call the, uh, <laughs> the givers and takers celebration, a uh, pride parade, <laughs> right? you know, the giver right. and pride going together, but okay. So to talk about the giver though, I do want you to break it down, but just looking at that polarity, giving and pride, it makes perfect sense on a instinctual level that, you know, if you're giving because you want to be seen as the special boy who gave the most, then there is like a, a pride demon that is acting through you more than an authentic desire to just give because it feels right. So, right. Yeah. Let's talk about, yeah, let's get into the meat of number two. Uh, so the number two is um, uh, the Magi card is in Sagittarius. Um, correspondent with Chewbacca, uh, not only because of his archery, you know, all of these uh, consistencies are very helpful for me uh, in locking them in place. But the real 
thing that tips the scales for uh, Chewbacca's uh, relationship to the giver is that Chewbacca is constantly repairing what has fallen apart. And you get the clear sense with Chewbacca's role, he's always in the background fussing and fiddling and faddling and making things come together. Um, he's so busy uh, that he's, uh, um, yeah, you get the sense that things would fall apart without him. But he's also the one who um, who makes amendments or amends uh, our C-3PO when he, get, when he collapses, when he gets broken down. And so um, he's the only one who actually is depicted doing repairs, like doing the, the grunt work, so to say, and to the extent that it's like his superpower. And so that is one aspect of the giver. You will often find the giver personality is burdened with too much to do because they are constantly saying yes, that they have a, a, a to-do list that is stacked up uh, too long to see the end of. Um, so that is depicted in the magician card, the Magi card by the table that is completely stocked piled with all the implements. It has exactly the amount needed uh, for the project at hand. I want to make an addition to what you're talking about here uh-huh. and just put in that if the color wheel here is accurate, putting the two in the green zone yeah. on a biofield level, the uh, two being green, that's heart. One of the things in terms of energy that can get stuck for people's heart chakra is being challenged with saying no, always oh, saying yeah. yes, and then yeah. having poor boundaries and then being taken advantage of because of that and holding also holding in rep- uh, repressed anger and wrath is a part of it. So, you know, the one to two spectrum, it is a like that there is a spectrum between the two. It's not like a hard and fast point, kind of like degrees on a zodiacal wheel uh, that the one is cutting into the green a little bit too. And the shadow of the one is wrath. So those are some ways that that plays in with the biofield that sort of backs up the, the, you know, consistency is a hallmark of truth resonance with this system here. Nice. Yes. I love that. And that is, that's like one of the important fractalities of these relationships. I think the fundamental important uh, light to see them is as they roll out sequentially, one, two, three, four, like you said, they fade in to one another in a fascinating way. But then when they make these jumps across the, gra- the, uh, the gram, the star, um, then they are reveal themselves even more personality wise. So yeah, that's a great point that you can see the one having this, a wing, it has that wing relationship to the two, the giver. Um, so yeah, the giver is uh, is often uh, gives even when it's not asked for, you know, to the extent that uh, they overgive, and then their pride is often their uh, their shadow. Um, and one thing that I think is just kind of funny about you know Chewbacca doesn't have any speaking lines, but he does cry out in pride, uh, his Wookie roar. You know, when things go right, Chewbacca's in the background going. And he is on the, he does have that wing to wrath as well. Right. Don't let the Wookiee win. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yep. Uh, So, uh, you know, okay. So like for people that aren't super familiar with Star Wars as well, uh, Chewbacca is like literally a slave. 
He is a willing slave. Yeah. So that is something to be aware of in the dynamic of the two as well, that uh, the giver has a maybe tendency to enslave themselves willingly. Now that word slave even has a lot of baggage to it. Um, but when we get into like looking at just take the, take the vowels out of words and look at the consonants and then look at what those consonants also talk about. So the slave is also the salve, salvator. So when we like consider the concept of slavery, we've been sold something um, that may not be 100% accurate to what, like why this dynamic even exists in the world or ever did emerge. Right. So with Chewbacca as the example, I know this pop culture, but he uh, had a life debt to Han Solo. Han Solo saved his life. So he would not be alive anymore if he, if it wasn't for Han. So he's pledged his service to Han for his life, for the duration of his life or Han's life. So he is like a slave, but um, a willing slave who is also a salvator. <laughs> you know, he is literally a salve. He's the one making repairs. He's healing the machinery. Yes. He is um, sa- saving Han probably more times than Han, Han ever saved him. And like doing it willingly, giving of himself. So yeah. I, I'm just pointing this out that like he, um, you know, you like for givers out there, maybe if you find yourself on this polarity of uh, giving maybe too much and having maybe a proclivity to feeling prideful about what you're giving in a way that is not helpful, um, that maybe you're overextending yourself because you get a hit of ego off of the pride. I'm sure everybody has done this before, but it's like, maybe you have, maybe this is your thing. Like for me, for me, I definitely find the enthusiasm and gluttony axis to be my biggest, uh, where I identify the most, you know? Uh Um, so we're like, we all have, I'm sure we all have at least one spot on here that we identify with a lot. So for the givers to just be aware, like you don't look at it like you're, if you're sort of a a willing slave in service to somebody or something that that's a bad thing, you know, just make sure that they deserve that allegiance and that it's not being done out of some kind of pride. Cause also think about the dynamic of Chewbacca giving his whole thing about like, that is a very pride, like honor and pride go together. Right. Uh So to give your whole life in service to somebody because they saved your life, you know, rather than being like, I'll be your slave for five years or I'll give you a thousand bucks or something like that. <laughs> you know, um, that is a very prideful thing in a way, because you're sort of saying that, like, you saving my life was so valuable that this is the only way I can repay you. And I have to do it this way for my honor, which is a pride deal. So right. I'm just laying that all out there. Like, there's a lot of fascinating psychology to explore with all of these different axes of the, you know, the light and shadow side. Yeah. And one, one other thing that uh, was really fascinating for me to discover during this project was uh, I'm learning about the lunar standstill cycles and they have two very fascinating node points in the Zodiac. One is basically on uh, between Scorpion and uh, Sagittarius, which is Ophiuchus. 
which I'm starting more and more to see as uh, Orion, or no, excuse me, Orpheus, the the uh, and Apollo, because they all play this harp, this musical harp instrument, the lyre, which that constellation is right there between Sag and Scorpio. So that lunar standstill is important because it uh, the symbol for it looks like a cobra, uh, what the symbol on a cobra's head. But I think those are also shackles. Those are also handcuffs, old old school handcuffs. So there's one down there, uh, right in the Ophiuchus neighborhood. There's another one up in Taurus. And so those two shackles are actually symbols that I've been keeping track of uh, more and more in my symbolic literacy. And we know that Chewbacca is constantly being uh, locked up. The old Wookiee, uh, the Wookiee uh, hostage routine. They literally call it this old routine is to pretend like the Wookiee has got handcuffs on but he doesn't really have handcuffs on. You're just getting closer to the guards so you can jump the guards. So uh, even that dynamic uh, kind of anchors him in to his, uh, his relationship there to the Sagittarius. Yeah. I'm just thinking also of the way pride has been used to covertly enslave population groups as well. Right. Or, you know, maybe not always enslaved, but that uh, identify like causing groups of helping groups of people choose to identify pridefully with their group has turned a lot of of groups into their own doomsday weapon against themselves. Right. Like uh, in terms of pride parades <laughs> and how far uh, the how far the alliance has gone of the L's, the G's, the T's, the B's, et cetera. You know, how many G's and L's out there at first were like pride is great, but now they're seeing how far the T agenda is taking things. And they're like, uh, regretting being part of that movement and giving so much of themselves to that movement and that alliance and that allegiance and realizing that like, Oh, we were ourselves sort of slaved out through our pride to support our own downfall. Because like I said, I think that the pendulum swings from pride parade to wrath parade. And uh, I, it is my hope that, you know, that there aren't innocents caught in the crossfire of all that. I would hope that, you know, this audience knows not to join any pride parades or wrath parades. (laughs) Right. right. Uh, Chance, do you want to, uh, do you want to play the uh, Lando Calrissian gets choked by a Chewbacca clip? Not on YouTube. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, just, what, I'll just share this this fascinating. Oh, maybe if you bring up the next graphic I sent you, it's got the Chewbacca choking on uh, Lando Calrissian. So this is the Magi card. This is one of three, maybe four Magi cards from the Thoth Crowley deck. This card has revealed so much to us. Uh, We did a dive on it on the spiders with uh, Mario a while ago. This card encodes the Second Amendment in so many ways. I've talked about it's uh, the second card. Uh, It's also the Second Amendment, uh, your right to bear arms, the Magi card. He's lifting his arms into the air. I've talked about this before. The correspondence of our uh, Constitution to the Tarot is a fascinating study. But this also encodes the fucking Derek Chauvin 
putting his knee on uh, Floyd. This this card has this uh, this symbol who's almost a Nazi swastika. If he bends his one arm another way, he's going to look like a Nazi swastika, and he's nailing he's kneeling on a monkey. And this is so fascinating to me because it's also got the colors of blue. The trigger uh, uh, of Blue Lives Matter is encoded in the card. Uh, and that is the color of Lando Calrissian's cloak is the same color of police officer blue. And in the scene where uh, the giver, Chewbacca, is choking Lando Calrissian, Lando Calrissian is a black man saying, I can't breathe. He's literally choking. It's a very intense moment in the film. And as a child, it was very triggering for the children. For an entire generation of children, it was triggering to watch Chewbacca choke out this black fellow who was so uh, charismatic and likable. And so in the most fascinating way, I think that I'm stumbling upon the archetypes to the building blocks of the cornerstone of our culture are being dismantled systematically in the the world stage, uh, in the things that we think we're seeing on the big screen uh, that may be way more contrived than we ever would have thought of. So I just thought I would share that uh, the correspondence of the uh, of the Wookiee, of the Magi card, and of the uh, the events around uh, Floyd, the George Floyd event. I think that there's, I think there's some fuel on that fire. I will add a little bit to it for you. You showed the Magi card, and in it you have the the Magi, if you will, standing on the ape, <laughs> right. and coming from his neck are these two serpents, right? So I'm going to read, this is from what page? Oh, page 108 of A God's Acre for Winds of the Soul, Dylan's book. Short little paragraph here where he says, the Hebrew word for ape is kof, Q-O-P-H or K-O-P-H, which shares the same root as the Greek word for serpent, which is oph in ophis, O-P-H. Kalmet wrote, quote, the inhabitants of Goa, the southwest coast of India, did not dare to kill apes any more than serpents because they believed them to be the residences of spirits created by God to afflict mankind in punishment for their sins. What does that sound like? Does it sound like what we're talking about? You know, (laughs) the shadow side of these numbers that, you know, if you. If you do the sins, you get the punishment in a very interesting way. There seems to be like kind of some relation there that I'm sure Crowley with his Hebrew letters on his tarot deck very much knew the correspondence between ape and serpent. Yeah, man, that is a trip. That is a real trip. And, you know, brings up the uh, RH factor in the bloodlines that we know that they've, you know, gone to wars over uh, RH factor in blood. That really is. That is something else. It's so it's so trippy to know that, uh, you know, that the world is run by religious extremists and science is just uh, hasn't caught on to their signs and symbols yet. Oh, well, they they own the science. Right. <laughs> Didn't you know? Right. right. Didn't you know, the guy who owns the science, his name is Ira. You can <laughs> you can look up the <laughs> the science. You can look up the copyright or the trademark or whatever oh man that's oh jesus oh ira (laughs) oh ira yeah 
<laughs> That's the name of a very specific uh, religious sect masquerading as an as a race when yeah. it's not actually a race. Yeah. Can't can't be both. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's so get into I, the three. You cool with that? Yeah, yeah. So number three is uh, you know the third card in the tarot deck. Um, I put uh, for is Princess Leia, and um, the in the enneagram it is an achiever, and uh, the achiever is uh, a very interesting station. Um, I think uh, I've corresponded it with um, uh, Dionysus uh, because it's very powerfully centered in the body. This is uh, in the center, uh, the pinnacle of the feel grouping. Um, So uh, Dionysus is a very good uh, deity personality to associate with the threes, um, uh, with a shadow of deceit. And I think that's very interesting because, you know, uh, Dionysus is uh, renowned for uh, uh, imbibing too much. Uh, you know the spirits bringing the spirits of the of the ritual, um, but also um, uh, drinking uh, a- alcohol is attributed to Dionysus uh, imbibing, and then uh, you know, people who have too much alcohol or uh, a, sh- a shadowy relationship with re- alcohol may be experiencing deceit in many layers. It's many faces of deceit. You know they might be deceiving themselves. They might be deceiving those around them. They might be dealing with a lot of deceit uh, so that they can appear to have, you know, this uh, public facing side of the achiever. And um, this might be a good time to kind of talk about that. You know, that um, I put the shadow on the outside, uh, further out from the center of the Enneagram. And I did that on purpose because I see the Enneagram also fulfilling the allegory of Plato's cave. And so your true self is more internal to the cave and your shadow is the red uh, identity of being uh, cast onto the cave walls. And so So like the, um, the achiever would be the light coming from you at a certain angle or angel. Yes. And the deceit would be the shadow caused by that light. You got it. And we don't in all what in what many people tend to see in this realm is we see our deceit uh, and we identify with our deceit. And because and this is what's interesting is if there's a lot of deceit as your shadow is coming up a lot, then you can actually formulaically uh, make a determination that achiever is your strong point. You know what I mean? So it, all of these things have very fascinating uh, two-sided aspects. Uh, uh, so, yeah. The, uh, you know, uh, mythologically speaking, I was just like, what is the core? Why is three, the number three, yeah. what is getting this attribution of achiever to deceit? Because I can follow the logic of the shadow of achiever being deceitful. Uh-huh. You know, you're lying about your accomplishments and it's adjacent to pride, you know, right, <laughs> makes right. perfect sense. And it's adjacent to envy. You'd be deceitful because of this envy, pride, you know, the, the wings of deceitfulness are envy and pride. That makes a lot of sense. Now, 
what came to mind, and I would love for you to talk about what you think, you know, the number three has to do with achievement other than, you know, for me, I'm thinking like, <laughs> if, if we're looking at the numbers, one, two, three as father, mother, child, then, you know, your achievement has, is your child in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking about how many different places claim lineage back to Troy, not just Rome. I mean, even even Britain is said to have been founded by Brutus of Troy. So Troy, Troya, that's three. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. you know, it's an achievement that we were founded by Trinitar. Tr- I'm sorry, Trojans. <laughs> Tri- <laughs> Tri- yeah, <laughs> three, so- threeists. And it's a deceit that is giving that pedigree. And now when we look at many of the pedigrees, if you will, pedigree being again related to parentage. So the three, the child of the mm-hmm. one and the two, uh, we see constantly a, a referring back to a mythological origin story that is in of itself the grounds for what the authority is rooted in or, you know, what, what the history is based on mythology that is itself not factual. So. I don't know if you've got, I would like to know more of what you think about why the three achiever is related to three. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, one thing I'm seeing with this one being uh, relating to the high priestess, which is the Capricorn aspect. This is just kind of fascinating. I don't know if I'm, if this is, this could just be coincidence, but it is card. It is card numeral Roman numeral two, but it's the third card if you're including the full card. So we have this uh, two and the three relationship. And there's many, many ways to to, uh, postulate the meaning of that. But one way that I think about is uh, the journey into the underworld and the the deal that was struck with Hades, with Persephone, uh, and when Orpheus went down there to get his sweetheart out of the underworld, uh, the rational proportion of the winter is uh, two-thirds of the year. So there's uh, this strange relationship to the number two, two-thirds and the idea that uh, the underworld or the winter time takes up that uh, two-thirds of the zodiac, the bottom. The bottom. You mean one-third for the winter? Or is it? Yeah, one-third for the winter and two-thirds for spring and summer. Right? I want to add to that. So the whole thing is divided by thirds. So this is the about- second third. The monad to the duad, mm-hmm. and if you start with a circle and then you put in another circle, that second circle that you move over to the right, right, creates a third shape hidden within the two circles, the vesica. Right. So like right. the, the duad, when the duad is mirrored off of the monad, contains inside of itself the third, the mediator. Right. The Dionysus. <laughs> and so yes. maybe that's also kind of related to the deceit aspect of it, that a the two mother, when pregnant and the child is within her, is carrying the two is carrying the three, but it's yeah. hidden, you know, and yes. deceit and, and hiding go together. That's a this is a really good point. I love that you're saying that. I totally agree. I think you're spot on because um because it's implicit. It's not an explicit third it's it's implied its presence is born 
uh, spontaneous. Even looking at the high priestess card, two pillars with her that between it as a third, you know, right, right, yeah. That third is is just uh, it's almost you could say it's um, uh, immaculately conceived. A tertium quid. A tertium <laughs> quid. Thing. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so the next card is actually not on here, but I can shoot it to you. Um, card number three. This is a interesting mystery that I'm kind of still sussing out. It's um, uh, this happened with my Marvel Avengers, um, and when I did my uh, first uh, tarot uh, to the Zodiac rollout, something really strange happens around card number three. But I'm just sending you. Uh, this is the Empress card. Is card number three, and. Uh, this card is um is inanimate. It's a it's a in the Star Wars storyline, it doesn't have a persona attached to it. Um and so in a strange way, it almost uh it, I don't know, it's almost like it's excluded or it might be encoding uh technology, you know, the uh the triangle of innovation. Um, but yeah, the Empress card is in, uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure is in Aquarius, uh, the Capricorn, the high priestess card, the achiever, uh, that is in, uh, Capricorn, uh, the winter. And now we're moving from Capricorn into Aquarius. And, uh, this is where, uh, the Empress card is stationed with Aquarius, uh, and it bridges a large portion, portion of this, of the star of the Zodiac, but I'm pretty sure, do you see the shape of the millennium Falcon in the shape of her veil? I'd have to see what the card looks like without her on it (laughs) to be sure. But But do you you see the veil that's draping from her crown, the white veil? Okay. I think so. And the whole, I think of it as a fig. I think she's uh, her figure is encoding uh, figs. She also has a fig shape under her arm in the negative space, but the veil itself is a cross section of a fig. And so the figure of her is generating the figure of the uh, Millennium Falcon. And even the moon, the little moon off her shoulder, the top uh, right, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, station uh, the captain's quarters. That's where they steer the Millennium Falcon. Is from that little moon crescent shape on her shoulder there. So I've put the Millennium Falcon uh, on her chest to accentuate its correspondence to the shape of the uh, the veil that comes off of drapes off of her crown. And then Cygnus is absolutely positively this uh, the goose she's sitting next to. In Cygnus constellation, when you look at it, it is uh, no doubt in my mind it's an X-wing fighter. So let's uh, let's talk about the four. Where, that's where we're at, right? We're going to be talk, we're talking about the next station number in the sequence, mm-hmm. station number four, which is individual, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll I think we'll give we'll go through the number four and then we'll probably switch over to the Rockfin side. So okay. giving everyone a heads up on that. We'll take a short intermission, but yeah, let's get into the uh, the dynamic of the individual and envy. 
And I think when we get back around the horn to uh, the enthusiast and the challenger, we can talk more about that trine because we didn't really get into the trine too much as you know, of how enthusiast challenger and achiever work together. Mm-hmm. But as we talk about the individual observer and balance can come into the conversation as well. But I want to definitely like, let's break down how, how's the four related to the individual. I see that you have encoded in devil dual. dual. <laughs> I'm guessing that's on purpose. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, uh, so what are the quality like what what are the qualities of four that make it the individual? What does it mean when we're saying in the Enneagram an individual? Because we know what that word means. Uh like you know, you're expressing your uniqueness or something, but right. uh it also means undivided, indivisible. Right, right. Yes, the individual is uh it's it's an interesting one for me because uh I relate to it uh, uh oftentimes. Um so this is uh in the Greek pantheon this was Aphrodite. Uh and Aphrodite has that you know that uh that beauty, that shamelessness, uh that casualness. Um one thing about the uh so is, um the empress card that we just got done with this is her emperor. So they are married, the empress and the emperor card. So 3 and 4 I have fused together. So I don't confuse anybody. At this point, we are bringing the inanimate object of the Millennium Falcon uh, and the Empress, and we're marrying it to its owner, the Emperor. Uh, okay, so that makes some that makes a little bit of sense. If people are like, "Why is yeah. why are we looking at the Millennium Falcon and the yeah. <laughs> the Empress?" It's because yeah. the pilot Han Solo. That's like his special lady. I got right. it. And in a fascinating way, there's a strange appropriateness to that fact that the three is like collapsing and disappearing here at the when we're at the four station because you know we went from the achiever which is card number two but it's the third card in the third station and now we're moving into the fourth station and somehow the card numbers are going to sync up here where we're actually card number three and card number four are going to be married to each other and from this point on things are perfected and in fact card number five is in station number five Card number six is in station number six. So here at the individual. You know, that's fascinating. I just want to put in that the four is the first number that becomes a one again. You got right? it. You yeah, got it. Because I tell people this all the time. One plus two plus three plus four equals ten. So you're coming back to one. Yes. So something really neat has happened. And I'm glad we made it this far on the first half. Because you have to live in both worlds for the ones the twos, the threes. And it's when you get to the fours that you're no longer of two minds. You, uh, you no longer have to do the, uh, you know, the Cal L and make the exception for the, the, you know, give or take one. And things become uh, fascinatingly fused and perfected in the individual. And I just think that there is something really mystical at what appears to be just a coincidence I it's think it's like with four being the most stable, you know, you need four legs for a stable table. Right, right. So something really profound is happening here with the alchemical wedding of three and four, which adds up to a seven in its in its own right. There's a lot of uh, alchemical numerological uh, fanciness being uh, consolidated here in the individual as we're about to step 
across a very important dividing line uh, from the four into the five. Uh, and we're about to bridge this gap of the foundation of the Enneagram, the fours and the fives. Um, that dividing line is the dividing between thinking and feeling. And so we are really going through some uh, very significant uh, shifts of focus as we go from the individual into the observer, from the four to the five. And it's, it's musical, it's allegorical, it's uh, it's uh, uh, al- algorithmical, you know, it has so many uh, meanings uh, that it's important, but it's also objectively, provably true. Uh, so, yeah, I thought I'd just kind of weave that all together, that collapsing the three and the four into this individual station, and we're now leaving the feel and going into the think. So what's the shadow of envy got to do with the individual? Mm. Uh the individual, this is an interesting one. The individual uh, is kind of in a, their own, uh, in a prison of their own making because they, um, they don't want, they don't admire other people's collectiveness. They do not admire the collectiveness uh but uh but they do envy it you know uh the de- the difference between envy and jealousy uh, is really nuanced and important but it's like uh you're not jealous of something that somebody else has you envy something that somebody else has uh and so in a strange way you know they want to be removed from but the uh, but that just drives them to envy the uh the belonging that the rest of the group uh, expresses or benefits from. And so just like, let's explain the linguistic difference here. Envy is when you feel that you want something someone else has, not necessarily at them losing it, but you want something similar for yourself, maybe to the point where you feel painful pangs of wishing you had it. Whereas jealousy is more like feeling threatened, um, protective or fearful of losing your losing what you have to someone else. Right. And people use those words simultaneously, but they're uh, really not the same. Envy focuses more on the advantages and possessions of somebody else. And then it hurts you to think that you want it to. And jealousy is uh, being more uneasy that uh, somebody could, that you need to protect what you have that you could lose it to somebody else that they might be better than better suited than you or more deserving than you. Right. It takes a little nuance to distinguish that. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the individual envy shadow is coming from them standing on their own stable, but feeling, you know, all of the (laughs) kind of feeling what the, the more collective you know, feeling the pride <laughs> and the perfection and the gifts and the loyalty, you know, seeing how they, how all that feels and uh, not right. kind of wishing they have it in a way. Right. And there's a, you know, there's a scene uh, in particular where uh, Han Solo, uh, you know, um, Princess Leia has just left the cockpit and walked away and it's just Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. 
Luke Skywalker has this look on his face like, oh, yeah, she's digging me. She is all mine. And Han Solo sees him glowing. And Han Solo, his envy flares up. And he's like, so what do you think, kid? You think a girl like her and a fella like me could ever? And, Han, and Luke Skywalker interrupts him. He's like, no, never. Don't. Uh-uh. You got no chance, pal. And Han Solo, he smiles and laughs because he, he totally knows what he's doing there, playing on those strings. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Han Solo's envy side comes out in a, a strange link uh, in the extended stories. You know, uh, the Millennium Falcon is actually the spirit of a rebellious robot. That uh, do you, Have you seen the extended stories where uh, I think it's like L-37 is the name of that robot? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of that kind of takes us into the weeds, but I know what you're talking yeah. about. That the yeah. Millennium Falcon has like a a sentience to it that was right. previously a sentient droid. Yeah, that kind of got like l- renewed life within the Millennium Falcon. Yes, and so that droid also has a shadow of envy, uh, very even more strongly so than uh, than Han Solo. So anybody who's really wants to nerd out on it, uh, you'll know that 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 droid also has a strong envy shadow expressed in its character. Okay. And so we can also see how the envy and greed or envy's wings are greed and deceit. You know, the star Wars metaphor is really perfect to help people conceptualize this. Cause most people will have seen this movie more than once. These characters are pretty universally known and um, you know, Han Solo does perfectly fit this bill of the individual with envy who uses deceit and also is, you know, prone to greed. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Uh, And there's a scene. So the, the tarot card itself of the emperor who is, by the way, is orange man, bad. The Thoth Crowley emperor card is totally orange man, bad. It's got all kinds of hero. Tremp is an anagram for the emperor. Um, but he's kicked uh, in one of his scenes. He's kicked back. He's negotiating with Greedo, who's going to try to collect on a, a, a bounty on uh, on uh, Han Solo's head. And in that scene, he literally puts his feet up on the table. It's a very like trademark move for Han Solo's foot up on the on the table to make this little negotiation with Greedo. And then from under his foot. He draws his his blaster and shoots Greedo with an underleg shot. And uh, what's really remarkable is that is symbolic to the Emperor card. He is in this particular deck. He has his uh, his legs kicked back and crossed. Uh, so it's just really fascinating that some of the symbols of this deck in particular are intrinsic to the Star Wars mythology. Okay, cool. So I think we'll talk more about the bridge of observer individual balance and that trine uh, over on the other side, guys. So we're going to, in a minute, take an intermission, play some music and come back or come forward <laughs> on the Rockfin side. And we'll also, I'll post this to my Patreon later tonight after we're, we're done. The replay will go up there. Nice. I will share links in the live chat for people who want to join, but the stream is already going on Rockfin. There's already people over there chatting. You can, if you've already got a membership, great. Hop on over and continue the, the journey with us. And if not, then, you know, what are you waiting for? Rockfin's a great deal. 
And it's worth very much so worth getting in and having all that access to the many, many creators who are doing it. And what's cool is also pretty soon Rockfin's going to launch a feature where there is going to be a price increase on the network. Uh, but they're also going to add a feature where creators can give individual membership option where they set the price for their content and someone can subscribe to just their channel for just their price. So at the point that that happens, I will make my Rockfin probably match the cost of my Patreon. If you want to just be on my Rockfin only, and that's uh, pretty cool. But it is also, I think, totally worth it to just get the whole network because there's so many great people on there. Uh, Gabriel, my man, is there anything you want to leave the free audience with on the subject of the Enneagram before we hop over and continue analyzing the other numbers? Yes, I'll try to be streamlined about this. Uh, one thing is I want to make I want to make clear that there is uh, something nefarious afoot here. Um, and it's as fascinating as as educational as it is to learn the systems. Um, I do uh, have good reason to believe that what happens when we all attach to these archetypes and they standardize the symbols of our childhood psychological uh, scaffolding, the nefariousness is that these things can be triggered and called up and summoned later on in your life. Uh, much like what we dis- we were discussing with the uh, George Floyd and the, you know, the choking of Lando Calrissian being a perfect uh, trigger for them to summon again later in our lives. Uh, so late that it seems like a distant coincidence. It's so far ago. How could that possibly relate? But the fact of the matter is that your emotional self your uh even your higher self you know the the self that you probably forgot you even forgot about you know the things you don't know that you don't know all of those things are packed away you know in the fool's bag over his shoulder of uh memories uh that we are uh quite capable of accessing and having uh used against us in a very very complex and nuanced subtle ways uh, so that is kind of what I uh, think is important about the project. Let me that, add to that too. And yeah. then you know, hold this thought because I want you to finish, but <laughs> I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is what we're talking about with the idea of like a primacy to these psychological archetypes being in some way the refracted light of the one mind and consciousness at its first levels of division. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, you know, like shadows on the cave wall of the perfected infinite self, the I am. And so in that way, the idea that there's a echo a resonance of Lando being choked out by Chewbacca, I can't breathe, hashtag I can't breathe. And in the next episode, he's wearing a mask <laughs> in the next uh, movie. It's weird. And I think that, just as I think it's on a level of synchronicity that is orchestrated by forces beyond humanity. You know what I mean? I think that there may be human beings at work who are in service to some of the archetypal forces in a more chthonic relationship. Mm -hmm. I think the 
that goes back in certain family lines a very long way, as we were exploring a little bit in the previous Vibrant with Dylan and Mario talking about the Solabushka. Right. So, right. So, at some at a, in a way, like when you are calling, when you have the number of the being, you like literally, you got their number. <laughs> And you're calling them in with all the symbols, behavior patterns, and all of that that correlate to the, you know, that relate to that number. Yeah. Then something maybe will answer the call and be like, okay. And then they will, it will respond in the mass psychology of the culture later. And there are, you know, tiny levers being pulled with big movements in the collective occurring as a result. That is so very well put. That is exactly, it magnifies the effects by, uh, you know, by uh, subjecting, by exposing it to the masses, the huge number of people, the effects of it can be, uh, yeah, quite weighty. Um, So uh, that's kind of the the significance of the project in general. Um, And another thing that I'm, uh, the reason I'm using Star Wars that I think is really, has been really revealing and fascinating is that I do believe that one of the uh, call and response dynamics of what Star Wars is, is I see it as uh, revealing to everybody, uh, keeping us current philosophically with the big questions that Nietzsche left open uh, to be consumed and maybe abused uh, after he was gone. Uh, I believe that thus spoke Zorathustra is a uh, intrinsic uh, personality aspect of uh, Darth Vader. And then I believe that Carl Jung is intrinsically woven into the character dy- dynamic of the Jedis, the lineages, the lineage of the Jedis. I'm inclined to think I want to put Carl Jung with um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, but Carl Jung might actually be Luke Skywalker. Uh, in an interesting way. So, uh, but these are the, uh, the levels of philosophical import that I think Star Wars still has today. And I'm dismantling it with the Enneagram and getting really fascinating answers. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to kind of put a grand summary on the project and maybe a little weight on, uh, why it seems to be coming, uh, to harvest. You know, these events just took place in the last couple of years. So. It's really interesting that it's like a 45-year harvest cycle. Yeah, buddy. And if we wanted to, we could do an entire Marvelous Demystifiers year-long series just on the Star Wars films. Oh, yeah, we could. And it would be like, that might happen. Who knows? (laughs) It's a big (laughs) commitment, but it's also, it would be fun. I've always wanted to really break it down. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing I'll add before we flip over to the uh, intermission, musical intermission, is Cody here in the chat says you don't want to label or attach yourself to the logismoi. <laughs> I think he's referring to the nine numbers here. Uh, consider them to be them as your whole self is greater than a simple little thought or concept. So, uh, you know, to put my own words on what he's saying is that you are not a number. I'm a yeah. man. I'm not a number. Damn it. I'm a free man. <laughs> man, that is so oh, God. And I just, you- have you ever seen the show, the prisoner? From the sixties. Oh, you've got to look this up. It's a short. Is that the one where he says, "I will not be filed, stamped, Stamped. whatever, or numbered." So his number. This is interesting to your point about there being so many of them. 
the number that he is given is number six. Holy shit. He doesn't, the character is called number six. He's never got a name in the whole series. Everybody yeah. in that series is a num is a number. That is a trip and a half. You got to go watch that. It's not very many episodes. It wow. will break your whole synchro brain. I'm sure. Yeah. man. <laughs> and, and big up to uh, decody for making that statement. We are not a number. And that is actually kind of the, uh, one of the important things, you know, that, is like the uh, the warning should always come before the uh, before the instructions. Uh, but yeah, like don't yeah. use this as a crutch. Do not fall into a personality. You know, don't become a stereotype. You know, these are archetypes. Archetypes are dynamic, uh, and they sh- are they stay alive. They do not fall into a pattern. And that's what's important about this is breaking patterns. Uh, definitely. So that's the intention. I totally want to uh, keep everybody on that on that tip for sure. <laughs> cool. Wonderful. All right. I'm going to play a musical intermission here. You guys know I love Wisdom Traders, my friend David. So this is a great track by him called, uh, I think it's called Soul Light. Soul Spring. Soul Spring felt appropriate for the subject matter. So we'll have uh, about three minutes of music and then we'll continue talking on the Rockfin side. And definitely check out The Prisoner. Behoff is right. Tessarion recommends The Prisoner. That's how I heard about it. You can find it on probably YouTube. It's a short series. It will blow your mind. Thanks, everybody, on the YouTube side for joining in on the live chat. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing the gravy on Rockfin. And for my Patreon subscribers, catch you guys later. <laughs>